Let's take our Bibles and turn together to the book of Ecclesiastes tonight. The book of Ecclesiastes. Some have called the book of Ecclesiastes deflating, even depressing. I tend to see the book of Ecclesiastes uh, different than that. But there is no question about the fact that the book of Ecclesiastes deals in harsh realities. That there's a certain cycle of life, a rhythm of life to which we are all bound. There are certain things that just unfold the way they unfold in this life. A certain level of frustration and hardship and difficulty that we're confined to dealing with so long as we exist in this present life. But that there's hope to be found in a loving relationship with a good and faithful father. Uh, if there's a key word in the book of Ecclesiastes, it's the Hebrew word habel. It, it's translated in the King James as vanity. It's translated in the Holman that we'll look at tonight as meaningless. Vanity of vanities. Vexation of the spirit. All is vanity. All is worthless. All is meaningless. Like a wisp of smoke on a windy day. So this life is here today and then it's gone tomorrow. That word appears over and over and over again in the book of Ecclesiastes. We looked at Proverbs on last Wednesday night and what I hope was a helpful study for you. I shared with you that we're studying Proverbs as a family with the new month. We're still looking at Proverbs. The boys said, we did Proverbs last month. And I said, we'll do Proverbs again this month. And uh, it was, it, we're, I'm all, we're always learning something new, always making a new discovery. I, I, here's, here's an interesting um, find from just days ago. On, uh, in Proverbs 31, the, the who can find a virtuous wife passage, that's like the classic Mother's Day passage, like women be this person, which is unrealistic, but that's the way it's typically cast. But did you know that that passage is not addressed to women at all? Now, there's application there. There's no question about that. This is not a word that says, women, this is who you should be. This is a word that says, son, this is the kind of wife you're looking for. And so it was helpful for us when me and the boys sitting down and looking through that passage, who can find a virtuous wife? Her worth is far above rubies. There's such riches and wisdom in the book of Proverbs. The book of Proverbs and the book of Ecclesiastes, for the most part, with a few exceptions within the book of Proverbs, share the same author. Solomon, great in wisdom. Naturally wise, it seems, in that he asked God for wisdom, and then supernaturally wise, as God was pleased to answer his request. Now, the life of, of King Solomon is kind of summed up by the three books that he writes, the three books of the Old Testament that he writes. In the early part of Solomon's life, the book of Proverbs provided, or the book of uh, Song of Solomon, rather, uh, is a book that chronicles the, the passionate love that Solomon has for the Shunammite woman. It's the kind of thing that might ordinarily be associated with youthfulness, and we'll see that um, in a couple of weeks as we study the Song of Solomon together. It always makes me uneasy to study the Song of Solomon in mixed company because it is passionate and romantic, but uh, we'll do just that as best we possibly can. Perhaps with a red face, we'll do that a couple of weeks <laughs> from now. 
And then in the noonday of Solomon's life, there is the book of Proverbs, heavenly rules for earthly living, how to navigate real life in the here and now in a way that brings honor and glory to the name of our God. And then in the evening of Solomon's life, the book of Ecclesiastes, a seemingly regretful retrospective on a life that was, at least in part, I would dare say largely wasted. So much of Solomon's potential, so much of the opportunity that was before Solomon to do greater things for his God were squandered, exchanged for 700 wives and 300 concubines and other earthly pursuits. Solomon was a man of, of great wisdom, but don't make the mistake of thinking that that means he was completely kept back from foolishness. 700 wives and 300 concubines can attest to the foolishness that Solomon undertook to do over the course of his life. And here at the end of his life, he gives us the book of Ecclesiastes under the inspiration of God's Spirit, perhaps in his heart an effort at redemption at the last hour to say to the world around him, don't make the same mistakes that I made. This is grandfatherly counsel at the end of a difficult and sin-scarred life. To a younger man, to younger men, to younger leaders, to those who had experienced prosperity and, and who had advanced themselves in their career in the world, even in government, to say, don't make the same mistakes that I made. Don't make the mistake of thinking that somehow, someway, if I can attain this, if I can possess this, if I can reach a certain level, that all will be well. Solomon has a way of putting material things into the proper perspective. If you're looking at the outline there, it doesn't seem terribly encouraging, does it? Everything is worthless. Everything is meaningless. But I, I assure you, there is a helpful lesson to be learned from the counsel of King Solomon here. Look first to chapter 1, verses 16 through 18. Here Solomon instructs us as to the worthlessness of wisdom. Now, wisdom is a good thing, isn't it? Wisdom is a good thing. It is good to be wise. You can't read the book of Proverbs written by the same author without coming away with the determination that wisdom is a good thing. Wisdom calls out in the street. She desires to be possessed. She wants us to have her. And yet we're resistant to her or reluctant to gain wisdom on our own. Wisdom is a good thing. But it is not the ultimate thing. See, that's the point of reference. That's how comparison is drawn here in the book of Ecclesiastes. Wisdom is wonderful, but it is not the ultimate thing. Look to verse 16. I said to myself, look, I have amassed wisdom far beyond all those who were over Jerusalem before me, and my mind has thoroughly grasped wisdom and knowledge. The, the distinction between wisdom and knowledge is a helpful one to make. It's not at the center of Solomon's point here, but it might be helpful for us to make a distinction between wisdom and knowledge as well. Knowledge is intellect. Wisdom is the ability to do something with the intellect that God has, has given you. He had amassed more knowledge, more wisdom than all those who had ruled in Israel before him. He says in verse 17, I applied my mind to know wisdom and knowledge, madness and folly. I learned that this too is a pursuit of the wind. For with much wisdom is much sorrow as knowledge increases, grief increases. 
all the wisdom in the world, all the knowledge in the world cannot make you, at the end of the day, a happy person. Now, we could deal with wisdom in greater depth and God as the source of wisdom and draw connections between our fulfillment and satisfaction and attaining wisdom. Yes, there's a level of truth there, but, but Solomon is speaking more in general terms here. You can know all there is to know. You can amass more insight than all who've come before you. And it can be a good thing, but it is not the ultimate thing. You cannot be satisfied by what you attain or hold between your ears. Solomon is a man of incredible wisdom. Remember now, Israel is this small, little, teeny, tiny place in the world. A place of relative insignificance for most of its history, at least in geopolitically. Now, religious significance is there, obviously, in the fact that we're studying the book of the, the Bible written in an Israelite context would suggest there's greater significance there than the world is often observed. But in terms of, of size and, and its economic footprint in the world and its military power and political influence, we're talking about this little sliver of land, a place of relatively small significance. And during Solomon's kingship, the world was sending her rulers to the, to the nation of Israel that they would seek direction and insight from King Solomon. This man is no pushover. This is, this is Bill Gates saying to our generation, all the money in the world can't buy happiness. This is a man who is a billionaire in terms of, of wisdom, and he's saying to the academic, to the scholar, to the student, all the wisdom in the world cannot make you a happy person. At the end of the day, wisdom is meaningless. He doesn't stop there. Chapter 2, verses 1 through 3, Solomon turns his attention toward pleasure. I said to myself, go ahead, I'll test you with pleasure. Enjoy what is good. But it turned out to be futile. I said about laughter, it's madness. And about pleasure, what does this accomplish? I explored with my mind how to let my body enjoy life with wine and how to grasp folly, my mind still guiding me with wisdom, until I could see what is good for people to do under heaven during the few days of their lives. This too Solomon finds to be meaningless. Vanity of vanities, vexation of the spirit. Do you understand what Solomon is describing here? When I realized that wisdom could not make me happy, that wisdom, although good, is not ultimate, I decided to turn my attention to pleasure. And he seeks out pleasure in a variety of ways. Clearly, sensual pleasure is implied in the passage that we just read. A man with 700 wives and 300 concubines should know something about the pursuit of satisfaction through sensual pleasure. Solomon says it is meaningless. It is empty. It is vapor. It is gone. It cannot bring you satisfaction. No matter how much the culture, no matter how much commercials, no matter how much entertainment, no matter how much mass media would have you to believe and indoctrinate you to think that sensual pleasure can bring you fulfillment and satisfaction, it will only leave you jaded and frustrated and empty at the end of the encounter. Solomon knows better than anyone else, and he says it's nothing. But it's not just sensual pleasure, maybe more specifically sexual pleasure that Solomon implies here in the passage. He says, 
I turned my attention to laughter and I found that it was madness. I, I don't know if Solomon had a company of court jester, jesters or what comedy looked like in ancient Israel, but he seemed to be seeking happiness, fulfillment, satisfaction out in being happy in the most superficial of, of ways. Even that he found to be empty and to be meaningless. And it's not as though Solomon goes about his pursuit of pleasure in a less than intelligent way. The wisdom of Solomon directed him even in his pursuit of this earthly, fleshly thing. Look to verse 3. He says, I explored with my mind how to let my body enjoy life with wine and how to grasp folly, my mind still guiding me with wisdom until I could see what is good for people to do under heaven. You understand what he's describing there? Solomon says, it wasn't that I just pursued pleasure in the sense that I just gave myself over to absolute blind drunkenness. This is not a picture of a man who just drinks until he forgets the day before and sleeps it off until the next. Solomon says, I, I was careful to measure my consumption of wine so that I was able to enjoy its intoxicating effects and not dull my senses so I could concentrate my thoughts on how to best bring myself satisfaction and fulfillment. Now, even the combination of Solomon's wisdom and the finest this world had to offer in terms of providing sensual pleasure could not bring King Solomon a sense of satisfaction and fulfillment. Even pleasure on some level is meaningless. It's chasing after the wind. It's vexation of the spirit. Solomon said, I did all I knew to do. I leveraged all of my faculties, all of my wisdom, all of my insight, and the finest this world had to offer. And I could not find fulfillment. I could not find a lasting pleasure through the resources of this world. Well, Solomon's not finished. Not only could wisdom not bring him fulfillment, not only could pleasure not bring him fulfillment, not even his possessions could satisfy him. Look to verse 4. Solomon says, I increased my achievements. I built houses and planted vineyards for myself. I made gardens and parks for myself and planted every kind of fruit tree in them. I constructed reservoirs of water for myself from which to irrigate a grove of flourishing trees. I acquired male and female servants and had slaves who were born in my house. I also owned many herds of cattle and flocks, more than all who were before me in Jerusalem. I also amassed silver and gold for myself and the treasure of kings and provinces. I gathered male and female singers for myself and many concubines, the delights of men. So I became great and surpassed all who were before me in Jerusalem. My wisdom also remained with me. All that my eyes desired, I did not deny them. I did not refuse myself any pleasure, for I took pleasure in all my struggles. This was my reward for all my struggles. When I considered all that I'd accomplished and what I'd labored to achieve, I found everything to be futile and to pursuit of the wind. There was nothing to be gained under the sun. Solomon says, I had it all. You know, understand that even today, the boundaries of the nation of Israel have not expanded to the breadth and length that they enjoyed in the days of King Solomon. 
the, the borders of Israel were greater in Solomon's day than at any other time in the history of Israel. The prosperity that Israel enjoyed during the leadership of Solomon is absolutely unmatched. The accomplishments of King Solomon are just incredible. Solomon's temple in and of itself by modern economists was said with inflation built in would have cost somewhere in the neighborhood of $2 billion to have constructed. Solomon pulls that off in an ancient Near Eastern context. Not to mention the many palaces that Solomon built for himself. The kind of vineyards and the ability to ir an irrigation system for a vineyard 3,000 years ago is pretty impressive, right? I mean, here is a man who establishes himself as perhaps uh, one of the wealthiest men in the world. He had it all. There was nothing that he withheld from himself. And Solomon says, it wasn't just that I was delighting in the possession of these things. It was that I took delight in, in attaining these things. He's enjoying the process of working to build this wealth, working to build this level of influence. He says, I took delight in all of my struggles. That is, I enjoyed the work that I set my hand to do. And I reaped the fruit and enjoyed the fruit of all of my struggles. I worked to get it, and then I enjoyed it to the nth degree. And all the stuff that I ever hope or hoped or imagined to have, I came to have. And it could not bring me satisfaction or fulfillment. Now, none of us are going to reach the same level of wealth or achievement that King Solomon enjoyed. No matter what fantastic dreams you may have for yourself. We're just not candidates, let's be frank. But we have all experienced that want that longing, that craving for the next thing. And we've had our itch scratched. We get it in time. We get it. Rarely do we not get what we fix our gaze on and we get it. And our response is not to celebrate. It's not to thank God. It's not to reflect on the journey. It is to turn our eyes further down the road toward the next thing we hope to get. Solomon is saying to us, from the mountaintop, no matter how high you climb, you can never find satisfaction or fulfillment in this stuff. It's not ultimate. It was never intended to be ultimate. Solomon is getting at the heart of, of the, the broader issue of idolatry. And he's addressing it in a way that really appeals to our Western situation, where it's not the golden calf or the great stone statue that trips us up. It's the stuff that we look upon and we covet and we set our hearts to have it and we convince ourselves we cannot be satisfied unless we do, only to find in the end that it cannot bring us satisfaction or fulfillment. That's Solomon's experience. No, no matter how much you get, no, no matter how often you find yourself filled with fleeting passing pleasures, no matter how much information you're able to attain or wisdom you're able to accumulate, it cannot bring you satisfaction or joy. Not in a lasting sense, it can't. Well, he's not done. And not only is wisdom, pleasure, and possessions meaningless, are meaningless, 
but labor is meaningless as well. Look to verse 18. Solomon says, I hated all my work that I labored at under the sun because I must leave it to the man who comes after me. <laughs> this is really not a good attitude <laughs> at first, right? have to leave this to somebody else. Somebody else is going to get it. I've known some miserable people who just worked hard to squander all they had in the end to make sure someone else didn't get it. Well, I got news for you, Jack. Whether you squander it or you send it down to your heir, somebody else is getting it in the long run. At, at the end, you're going to be separated from the stuff that you've held fast to. Solomon enjoyed his struggles as he was amassing his great fortune. But now, in the end, he says, I hate my job. And I, I hate that I've worked all these years to have all this stuff. Because it's just going to be somebody else's stuff. Now, he's not reflecting a good attitude here, right? It's not the attitude that we should reflect, but that's not the goal. In a general sense, Solomon is saying again, although your work may be noble... And you may bear earthly responsibilities to provide for those within your care. And the righteous man, Solomon says in the book of Proverbs, leaves an inheritance to his children. There is no escaping the reality that death is coming for all of us. And one day soon, your stuff will be somebody else's stuff. <laughs> Verse 19, he says, and who knows whether he'll be a wise man or a fool. Yet he'll take over all my work that I labored at skillfully under the sun. This, too, is futile. So I began to give myself over to despair concerning all my work that I'd labored at under the sun. When, there's a, when there is a man whose work was done with wisdom, knowledge, and skill, and he must give his portion to a man who has not worked for it, this is futile and a great wrong. For what does a man get with all his work and all his efforts that he labors at under the sun? For all his days are filled with grief, and his occupation is sorrowful. Even at night, his mind does not rest. This, too, is futile. Now, there's a level on which we really can't debate Solomon, right? He's a man of great wisdom, and here he writes under the inspiration of God's Holy Spirit. And, and he writes with precision accuracy. He has written in a way that is completely and totally consistent with the inner thoughts of a man who has made his work the ultimate in his life. There's a different way to talk about our life, our labor, our possessions, the pleasure that God grants us. There's a different way to talk about these subjects. But in so much as your pleasure and your possessions and your work are ultimate to you, at, at the end of it all, this will be the tone that you'll take. See, Solomon has come to regard his stuff somewhat differently as he reflects on his life and the pursuit of wisdom and his possessions and his inheritance to be left behind in the book of Proverbs. But he speaks from the position and from the mindset of a man soured by having chased after the wrong stuff for far too long here in Ecclesiastes. If you make your job be the ultimate thing, it will leave you jaded and frustrated and broken and bitter and empty in the end and filled with regrets. But if you see it as a means to an end, which is what it is, right? A means to providing for our wives, a means of providing for our families, 
a, a means of, of providing us with certain pleasures in the here and now, all within the context of our understanding that it's God who is ultimate. It's Jesus who is ultimate. That the thing that matters, indeed the only thing that matters beyond the next 30 seconds, is a healthy, loving, saving relationship with the God of heaven. When we regard our stuff and our experiences in the context of a good, healthy gospel understanding, doesn't it shift our thinking and turn our attitude and shape the way we speak about life in general? It's really super-duper easy to get really depressed about the situation in the world around us. When you look around in your own personal life, there's a myriad of reasons to be sad and sorrowful and discouraged and frustrated. Some of us are not at the place we thought we'd be at this point in our life. For some of us, our health is not what we wish it was at the present hour. For some of us, we've just not lived up to the expectations that we had for ourselves. We don't like our job. Things just stink right now. It's cloudy outside. I mean, we, let us count the reasons for discouragement. There, there, there's a multitude of them. But, but in the end, if we set our minds on heavenly things and, and we recognize that all of this unfolds within the context of a world where God has loved us and sent forth his son, don't you get the impression it's all going to be all right? <laughs> there's so much more here in the book of Ecclesiastes. I thought I'd give you that in the outline. We'll come to the conclusion at the end and then just sort of breeze forward a little quicker. There, there's a, a lot here I wish we had more time to sort of settle into. I want us to go down to chapter 12 at, at the end of the book. If you're familiar at all with Ecclesiastes, you're familiar with Solomon's conclusion that what we're left to do is to fear God and keep his commandments. But he builds to that conclusion in uh, the whole of chapter 12. He says in verse 1, Remember your creator in the days of your youth. And then this sounds like conversations that I've had with senior adult men who've influenced me and loved me and led me well and even discipled me in some cases. It's an almost comedic telling of the pains and the difficulties of growing old. Solomon says, remember your creator in the days of your youth while you've still an opportunity to do great things in service to the king. Don't forget him. Before the days of your adversity comes and the years approach when you'll say, I have no delight in them. There's a rhythm about life, right? There, there are difficulties at, at, at the end. There's joy and wisdom and, and the latter part of our life is to be celebrated and honored. But who would debate that there aren't difficulties and challenges that come along with that season of life as well? Before the adversity comes, before it gets more difficult to do things than it is now, Solomon says, son, remember your creator maximize your youthfulness, your energy, and your vigor to bring glory and honor to Jesus. In verse 2, he says, Do it before the sun and the light are darkened and the moon before it dawned on me that much of chapter 12 is metaphorical. Before the light's dim. Solomon says, Before your vision goes bad, remember your creator. In verse 3, he says, On the day when the guardians of the house tremble, and the strong men stoop before your arms weaken, before you don't have the strength or the stamina that you once had. Remember your creator in the days of your youth. 
before the women who grind cease because they're few. Can you guess what he's describing? Before all your teeth fall out. Remember your creator and, and your youthfulness. While the energy is intact and all is well and you're, and you're whole, whole and healthy. The ones who watch through the windows see dimly. Again, a reference to the eyes. The doors at the street are shut while the sound of the meal fades. Now, I don't know all the ins and outs of what Solomon is describing here, but it seems to be a thinly veiled reference to the digestive tract. Before there might be difficulties there, Solomon says, remember the Lord in the days of your youth. Yeah, this really does sound like conversations I've had with men who've encouraged me and <laughs> helped me along the way. He says in verse 4, when one rises at the sound of a bird and all the daughters of song grow faint. Y'all know if you've been around any time, my, my grandparents raised me. I live with my granny and my grandpa. And my grandpa couldn't hear it thunder. Couldn't hear it thunder. But if I came in late, it, it, he could hear a mouse traipse across that linoleum floor. You know what I mean? This is a, this is, this is a, a supernatural sixth sense feature that comes with senior adulthood, right? When one rises at the sound of a bird. And yet at the same time, all the daughters of song grow faint. Can't hear the song, but I can hear the, 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 the range that happens with us over the course of time. In verse 5, the Bible says, Sol Solomon says, Remember, also they're afraid of heights and dangers on the road. They grow more and more careful. Whereas young people are more daring. Foolish is what it is. Foolish is what it is. With time and, and wisdom comes greater care and caution. I can hear Granny saying, be careful. It's raining out. Like rain was the most dangerous thing I would be involved in on most given evenings, you know. The almond trees blossom and the grasshopper loses its spring. The caperberry has no effect for man is headed to his eternal home and mourners will walk around in the street before the silver cord is snapped and the gold bowl is broken and the jar is shattered at the spring and the wheel is broken into the well and the dust returns to the earth as it once was and the spirit returns to God who gave it. Solomon describes in metaphorical terms everything from dim diminishing vision to high blood pressure to digestive issues in those verses. Just as a reminder to anyone who will hear, don't squander the health and the life that God has given. And I just, can I just say to you as young people as well, don't, don't squander the health that God has given you. Take care of the body that God has granted you. Leverage every ounce of energy and every second of life that God has given you to bring honor and glory and fame to the name of Jesus. I used to enjoy fitness and weightlifting and running and those kinds of things probably because I was more vain than I needed to be. Now I just want to live. You know what I mean? I just want to have the ability to squeeze every minute of the day with energy and gusto to be in service, faithful service to the king and to be able to get home at the end of a long and difficult day 
and not be that dad who's dead on the couch, but with enough remaining in the tank to do things with my children and invest in my relationship with my wife, take care of the life that God has entrusted to you. Because like it or not, these days are coming for all of us if death doesn't get us first. So I, don't, I don't know that we think about how we provide for our physical body as a spiritual endeavor, but brothers and sisters, it is, it is, it is. Solomon says, while you've got a little time, be certain that you don't forget your creator. In verses 12 and following, Solomon wraps the whole book up, and here's what he says. But beyond these, my son, be warned. There is no end to the making of many books, and much study wearies the body. When all has been heard, the conclusion of the matter is, fear God and keep his commands, because this is for all humanity. For God will bring every act to judgment, including every hidden thing, whether good or evil. Don't leave tonight thinking that Solomon said that wisdom is bad. No, it's just not ultimate. And don't think that Solomon said that working is bad. It's a good thing. It's just not the ultimate. Don't even think that possessions are a bad thing. That, for that matter, pleasure is a bad thing. God has allowed for, provided for us to enjoy pleasure. These are good, noble things that are a part of what God has created us to enjoy. They're just not the ultimate and, and this is where we slip into idolatry, right? This, this is how the distinction can be made for us. So many of the things that cause us to stumble, that trip us up in our spiritual life, are really good things. We just make them ultimate. Like we're weeks away from, from college football season. I just came from 12 years within 20 miles of an SEC college football stadium. And I want you to know college football is a wonderful thing. I, I just think it's a remarkable thing, but I'm going to tell you what it is, it, it, what it is too. It's a terrible God. And if, you, and if you make these things that God has provided, these good things to be God's in your life, they will always leave you frustrated and you'll eventually come to the conclusion that they are meaningless, vexation of the spirit, a chasing after the wind. Keep the ultimate as the ultimate in your life and enjoy everything else, these passing fleeting pleasures within the context of our understanding that there is one who is worthy of our worship and praise, one who is deserving our, of our absolute allegiance, and his name is Jesus Christ.